Good morning and welcome to the National Capital Bible Church this morning for our uh, first and uh, only service this morning. Uh, glad to have you all here. There's uh, many very familiar faces, uh, some returning, and uh, glad to have you all here. Uh, this is, uh, would be, I guess you could say, our traditional, somewhat traditional Christmas service, although we have done several or many things over the years regarding this service, and this morning decided to do something just a little bit different. We'll have maybe a little bit more music, but uh, not the uh, the congregational involvement that we've had uh, in the past. But anyhow, I think you'll enjoy yourselves, and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to the fellowship meal afterwards. Uh, today is... Uh, a day of hopefully celebration, but one of the things that very often uh, comes to us in and around the Christmas season is disappointment and sometimes also discouragement. And that really is where we will be uh, somewhat focused this morning in our biblical story. Uh, but one of the promises and one of the really the commands that we are given by God comes from Paul and he says we should be anxious for nothing be anxious for nothing but in everything with by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God and the peace of God that passes all understanding shall garrison your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and finally brethren whatsoever things are true whatsoever things are noble Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate, be occupied with these things. And the things which you have learned, received, heard, and saw in me, these things do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Very often we quote that, that passage and we leave off where our minds should be, where our focus and concentration should be. And today we're going to be studying a passage that demonstrates to us that even during times of discouragement, we can be focused on the Lord, His plan, and it results in righteous living and God's blessing. Let's take just a few seconds of personal spiritual preparation. This is our opportunity for confession of sins, your opportunity to uh, prepare yourselves for our worship service this morning. We know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that places us in the specific and empowered position, spiritually empowered position to, to worship God and be uh, influenced by God the Holy Spirit. Let's take just a few seconds, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, and then I will open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful 
for the hope, but really the promise. It's certainly an expectation, but it's the promise, Father, that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ at Christmas. We're thankful for his birth. We're thankful certainly for his life. And we're thankful for his substitutionary sacrifice for us. We pray, Father, as we enter this season, now in the midst of it, that our focus would not be self-centered, that it would not be distracted from what it should be. And that's our praise, our wonder and awe, but also the sure confidence of what you've done for us. We pray, Father, as we study our passage this morning and also as we sing our praises, that our focus would truly be on you, your Son, and what you've done for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, our study, if you will, our study will approach the Christmas story from the perspective of a special couple. As a matter of fact, as I was contemplating this message earlier in the month and as it approached, I thought, you know, I'm going to present something regarding the biblical perspectives of Christmas and approach it from three different couples. But very often, as you prepare, you find that there is an overwhelming amount of material and it's going to be very difficult to do three couples. And therefore, probably one is going to be more than enough this morning. And the couple is one that is maybe not normally the focus of the Christmas story. The situation of this couple, of their life, is probably not too difficult, or too different, rather, from many people at this time of the year. As I mentioned, very often there's disappointment and even discouragement. Although, as you read the passage, that does not, um, that's not on the surface. It doesn't jump out at us. But we know that it's probably there. And our study is not going to focus on the birth of Christ, but this couple plays a significant role in our Lord's life. And as we study their life and the situation in which they find themselves, I believe that there's a great opportunity here for learning from their lives and the understanding of encouragement for us as we face maybe discouragement and disappointment during the Christmas season or even in our lives. 
because this really should be a time of happiness and blessing. And I think we know that. It's just that often we struggle with that. So this morning, let's learn from our couple as we study Luke 1 and see their trust in God and their faithfulness even in the midst of what we might determine to be disappointment. Luke 1, beginning in verse 5. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take some of these verses. We're not going to really work with the PowerPoint this morning. We'll simply work in our text and make some observations as we go. And by the way, I, I always find as we study Bible characters that there is so much more there than we often find on a rather quick reading or a superficial reading. And one of the ways that we determine that is by placing ourselves in their positions. What would we be thinking What might we be doing? Uh, What might, uh, what other situations might be surrounding them? And we often have been in those situations. But this morning, we not only have this couple and their situation, but we have another character who doesn't appear often but who is vital for the Christmas story and is actually involved in other parts of the Bible. And that's an angelic creature. And I find angels to be absolutely fascinating. You know, there is a veil that comes between our life, the viewable present and history, and the invisible world. And because things are out of sight for us, they're, as we often say, out of mind. But what we don't realize is that This world is full of flames of fire, as they're described in Psalm 104. Angelic creatures. And it would be, I don't know, maybe presumptuous of me to say that this room is full of angels. But... They are an innumerable creation. We have no idea how many angels there are. They're innumerable. Millions and millions of them. And they're created for one purpose, and that is to serve God. And I have a a suspicion that God is a very efficient supervisor of his flames of fire. And I have no idea how many are here today. 
might be sitting right here in these chairs. But they're here. And we're going to see an angel that will join us this morning in our story. And we're not told what Gabriel is thinking. But I, I, every time I read this story, every time uh, I read of angels, I wonder. Serving, directly serving God. Flames of fire. I think it would be just incredible. But you know, and I'm a little off my subject right now, but I think we have that same opportunity to serve Him. To serve directly for God. And so often, we pass. And we shouldn't. Luke 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. It's what the translation I have in my New King James Version. There'll be some differences if you are in an NIV or a New American Standard Bible or an English Standard Bible version or uh, some other version. But the still pretty similar. And it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, certain priests named Zacharias of, I think maybe a better translation would be, belonging to the division of Abiah, or Abijah, as we have here. Now, this king is going to be Herod I. We know him as Herod the Great. He had been appointed by Roman Empire, a Roman emperor, and I'm going to supply some background information because it's pretty important for us to understand who Zechariah is, what he's doing, why he's doing, and how important it would be to him and to his wife Elizabeth. King Herod ruled from probably about 37 to 4 BC, and he ruled over the majority of the area there, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, much of Perea, and also Syria. And he was known for his building projects, but even more so for his cruelty. The events in our story probably occur around 6 B.C., somewhere in that vicinity. And the priesthood of Israel had been divided by David and his high priest Zadok into 24 divisions. And those 24 divisions lined up under the priest that was in, uh, that was alive at that time. And these 24 divisions were created and designed to help administer in the temple. And in doing so, they would rotate. The high priest was certainly responsible for what happened in the temple, but it passed really to these divisions to select who was going to be responsible directly, the individuals. And in each division, there were somewhere in the vicinity, if history uh, is accurate, there was somewhere in the vicinity of maybe eighteen to 20,000, which means there were a lot of priests for relatively few jobs. 
The division, and we are working with Abaya's division, served for one week twice a year. One week twice a year. Which means for that brief period of time, these priests who lived their lives to serve in the temple had a very, very slim chance of actually carrying out these responsibilities. Now, depending upon our translation, we can call call our priest here Zacharias, uh, Zachariah, and even in some English translations I found Zachary, really making it pretty anglicized. Uh, But I always like to call him Zach. As a matter of fact, I think I've told you this, but many, many years ago, when I was driving back and forth across country as a young Marine officer, I decided that I was thankful that I had at least one guardian angel with me at all times. And I don't know why, but I named him Zach. had many a conversation with Zach. Anyhow. We're going to see here that Zachariah, or Zach, is not only a man of God, but he's identified as a righteous man. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that would be our reputation? You know, some people often say, what do you want on your tombstone? Sometimes not much to record there. But the Bible, for all eternity, assigns to this priest the title or the identity of being a righteous man. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that were said of us someday? So he was identified as a righteous man. And again, since the time of Aaron, the priest's jobs, there was a division of labor between, separation of labor between the the Levites, who really did most of the work. They were the ones who were involved in uh, caring for just about everything about the temple. But the priests had specific jobs of offering the various sacrifices, giving thanks, singing praises at the temple, And here we see one of those responsibilities is going to be inside the holies, the holy place, we would say. And there were a few tasks, responsibilities there, but they were few. The second part of our verse here in Luke 15b, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. So, Zach's wife here is Elizabeth, and that has been, it was a very popular name then, it has been a popular name, and I, I don't know if it's still popular today, but it's significant to, be because, to me because it was my mother's middle name. I've always loved the name Elizabeth. And uh, his wife is Elizabeth. Not only that, but she is of the family of Aaron. We're going to see that 
it wasn't a requirement for a priest to marry within the Levitical priesthood. Uh, They would marry in one of the other tribes. They could. But it was, again, in studying history about the priesthood, for a priest to marry a woman who was also in the line of Levi was considered to be a great blessing. They were both in the same family. And so Elizabeth, at the time of their marriage, it would have been considered to have been an ideal marriage. Absolutely wonderful. Her name means God's promise. Could even be abundance, God's abundance. Or some like to say oath of God. Now the names, you know, the meaning for the names are very often significant. Sometimes it's hard for us to know how those names were assigned with those meanings. But uh, they are very revealing. And I think God the Holy Spirit uh, carries that meaning or the significance of those names in Scripture. Elizabeth would have been very much involved with her husband's duties. And by the way, that's as it should be. You know, today very often uh, husbands believe that somehow their jobs are so completely different or distinct from what their their wife might be able to do or how they might be able to assist them that they hardly even give them a thought, an opportunity. But by creation, they are to be involved significantly involved in their husband's lives and what they're doing. And Elizabeth, I believe, is that woman. She's involved with Zechariah. What? One of the things is she's mentioned very early in our text. She's right here. She's not an afterthought. And no wife should be. She would have specifically helped him with his priestly garments. She would have been involved in the temple function. She would have been there. She would have been involved in uh, hosting and guesting uh, events that in their home, <clears throat> in their home for uh, maybe uh, discussions of temple matters. So I believe that she was very much involved in his life. And verse six says. And they were both righteous before God, walking, and our word here, maybe not translated the best walking, but it means to go. It's following, being involved. They lived honorably, is what we have, following in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord and they did this blamelessly. It doesn't mean they were perfect. It means that they were devoted to what God required of them. And because they were, they were able to live a righteous life. Sometimes we think that sort of the righteousness maybe comes first. This, by the way, is experiential righteousness in our lives. But because they were obedient, because they knew 
the text of Scripture. And because they followed it, they were deemed to be blameless. Again, uh, we might expect this from a priest. We might say, well, you know, naturally. But that's not true. Priests had just as many opportunities to fail and be unrighteous or not righteous as it was for anyone else. And I'm here to tell you today that temptations and difficulties for pastors are very real. And therefore, as we read that Zechariah was a righteous man, his wife was a righteous woman, we don't say, yes, naturally. No. I believe that this is absolutely a recognition of the fact that they were focused, concentrating, devoted, dedicated to their spiritual lives. He was a righteous man. She was a righteous woman. And again, I think that a righteous man is significantly enhanced by a righteous woman. And of course, the opposite is true. You know, it's it's true the man is to be the spiritual leader. But the wife, the woman in the relationship is so critical and so beneficial. And that's the divine design. And these this couple, this married couple, I believe, were supportive of each other. They were an encouragement to each other. When one would fail, the other would pick them up. And this is important in our lives. This is the divine design. <clears throat> I think that as we see Zacharias, Zachariah, Zach, and Elizabeth here, we see a wonderful example of what Paul tells us in Ephesians 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think that's what we see here with this couple. <clears throat> now, again, this sounds like a blissful couple probably a couple in which there is nothing but golden events and golden days. But we know that there is no such couple. And there's no such life. And even if we observe certain couples and think, boy, they live a blessed life. Well, if that's what we believe and that's what we think, it's because that they are working very hard at their life. Luke 1, verse 6 here, excuse me, uh, Luke 1, 7 says, but they had no child. They had no child. I, I love the way Scripture, just very frankly and openly, puts this in front of us. They're a righteous couple and they have no child. 
you know, when God's blessings seem to rain on us, seem to come routinely, it might seem to be easy to be faithful, but the real tests in life come when we encounter disappointment and sadness. And for this couple, even though this is the line that we see, and there is no line after this that expresses to us their lives and their thoughts, we have to know that it was there, their disappointment and sadness. Children are important in any era, but in those days they were considered a necessity as well as a blessing. And many children were considered to demonstrate God's grace and blessing in their lives. In their world, children would have been considered a reward for faithful service. That's It's interesting as you read the history and uh, the, common, uh, the commentators, the theologians about this. It's remarkable how they see this. But I think that's wonderful. We guess that uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth probably had desperate questions haunting them about this. Why? Why no children? Why was their home absent of children? They probably wondered about their own faithfulness and if they had sins in their lives and failures. But here we see this couple did not. And I think that that's a testimony to us. We cannot immediately assume that we are failing just because something that we desire, something that we want, is not present in our lives. They were a righteous couple, but they were without children. If anyone, we would think, would be rewarded with children, it would be this couple. But they're not. But it's not because they are unrighteous. It's because God is working in their lives. It's normal for us as believers to doubt ourselves. But we must simply trust the Lord for His provision. Why? Because He knows best. And then we're told why. We might not otherwise know why. And... It's not a far-gone conclusion today when a couple is having difficulties, having children, that it's the woman's fault. Very often it's assumed, unfortunately, that way. But here we're simply told. 7b, because Elizabeth was barren. She was barren. So the text tells us that Elizabeth here is unable to conceive. And even though the text does, in those days, that's how it was assumed. And so while Zechariah was probably disappointed, Elizabeth was probably at times distressed over this. Some women might pity Elizabeth. Others, though, would hold her almost in contempt because she's unable to stain. You're not really... 
a, a complete woman, is sometimes how we might hear it said. They might wonder what she'd done to receive God's displeasure. And sadly, we can be very cruel at times when it comes to human situations, when in fact just the opposite is required of us to be an encouragement to others, to be supportive. One of the things we have to remember, just an aside here, is that today, then, for the most part, infertility is a matter of the fall. Some of us are born with being nearsighted. Some are born with maybe a heart murmur. It's because of the fall. Not because there was something we did, or generally speaking, our parents did. You know, there are some things that can happen, I suppose, during the nine months of pregnancy. But it's a condition of the fall, a fallen body. And uh, we need to understand that we don't have perfect bodies. If we had perfect bodies, it wouldn't happen, wouldn't have occurred. But that's not the case. In this case, I believe that God's hand is involved because God is going to be using Elizabeth for a very special purpose. But in the eyes of the world, Elizabeth probably had failed her husband and the societal consequences would be disfavor, humiliation, and sometimes to the extreme, divorce. However, what we see here is Zachariah's godliness extends to his wife. As near as we can tell, he loves his wife and they're going to endure this disappointment together. But we notice, or we're going to see at least, that they've not abandoned hope. This is something that is going to be prayerfully part of their lives. And that is going to be, we're going to find that later in the story. That this is not something that was a fait accompli for them. And I think we should be very... of the two... of while Zechariah could be very disappointed, I think this hits Elizabeth the hardest. Personally, societally. And for her to continue to be a righteous woman, I think, speaks volumes for her. <clears throat> and then we read, in the second part, third part, really, of Luke 1.7, and they were both well advanced in years. Now, because we know that Elizabeth here was unable to concede, conceive, we know that it would take, therefore, a miracle. She was not only barren, but we would say she was past her prime. And not only that, but so was her man. This has probably gone from a disappointing situation to a desperate situation, to finally a hopeless situation. But they have not lost hope. We don't know how old they are. don't know if they're in their 40s. We don't know if they're in their 60s. We don't know if they're older. The text simply makes the point that they were 
too old. Humanly speaking, conception is not going to happen. And I think that Luke here is probably drawing a comparison between Abraham and Sarah, between Isaac and Rebekah, between Jacob and Rachel, Hannah. Hannah, by the way, was truly distraught over it, but then she had a little help from her a friend. And then, of course, Samson's mother. And so these, these, this is seen in our text. So the stage here is set for God to intervene and make the impossible possible, which is something that God can do and does all the time in our lives. Now this isn't to say that we shouldn't always expect to get our wishes, our desires, our prayers. God answers our prayers, not always the way that we believe is right, fit, proper, what we would like. But God hears our prayers. God knows what's best. And God provides. Verse 8 says, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, notice it just moves right on. We start with who he is, who they are, what he's doing. We're given the situation, their personal family situation, and then the text just moves right on. What does that tell us in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life? Life goes on. Life goes on. Some people, certain events in their lives lives destroy them. But for Zechariah, and by the way, there are thousands of other priests. He could easily just float off to the side, down to the bottom. But he continues to do his service within his division. And not only does he do his service, but we're going to see here that God selects him for his duty. So he continues to serve. Zacharias still was in full service. And of course, that meant that Elizabeth was involved as well. You know, Elizabeth might have said, you know, maybe we can be a little bit less in the public view. Maybe we don't have to be quite so prominent. No. Continuing to serve. She is described as righteous just as he was. Verse 9 says, According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn, uh, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So the custom here of casting lots, today we see this as rather like rolling the dice, or so we think. And it doesn't sound very spiritual, but that's how priests determined the will of God at that time. And because it not only was accepted, but it was directed by God, this was the will of God. When we see that they cast lots and 
There's all kinds of explanations of exactly what that means. But what it's saying is that God made the determination with the casting of lots. This was not by chance. God determined the roll of the dice. Now, that doesn't mean you should now go to Las Vegas and allow God to control the dice. Completely different. As a matter of fact, after Acts 1, we don't see lots being cast again. So, because there were so many priests for so few jobs, this would have been a a highlight of Zechariah's ministry. Literally, what we would call a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to offer incense at the golden altar within the holy place. And according to the Mosaic Law, a priest would burn incense at the altar every morning and every evening. The rising incense here was a pleasant aroma to God. And it represents prayers. Incense in the holy place represents prayers. And likewise, our prayers ascend to the throne, the throne room. That's how we're seen. And they are pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God when we pray, when we address him, when we enter into the throne room of God. And that's what Zechariah was doing. God here sovereignly selected Zechariah for this assignment. God chose Zechariah to the honored task of burning incense. So Zechariah is not an insignificant priest, nor is this an insignificant responsibility. Verse 10 says, And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. We're not completely certain how this worked, because it's not described anywhere uh, except here, really, in any detail. But apparently, when the priest entered the temple to present, to burn the incense, there would be a significant crowd outside, not just a few onlookers. But people would come because this was a special event. The priest was really offering the incense on behalf of the people, and therefore they came. It was almost as if, let's go to observe this because we want these to be our prayers. We want to participate in this service. And so many would be there. And we know that, of course, Elizabeth would be there in the court of the women, watching, praying. This would be a solemn time. It would be very quiet. As the priest enters the temple, everyone surrounding it would be silent in their own prayers because it's their prayers that would be illustrated by the incense that's going to be offered. And one of the important parts here, I think, for us to understand is that prayer is critical to our lives. Absolutely critical. We have so many biblical examples of prayer warriors. 
not the least of which would be the apostles and certainly the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've often said, we do not realize how much time the Lord spent in prayer while he was on earth. We know that there were times when he prayed through the night. We know there were times when he would rise early and go off by himself to pray. And I've often said, if the Son of God whose life is cast before him by his Father and who was wise beyond any other human being, if he spent an immense amount of time in prayer, so much that I think that's one of the reasons he was often fatigued in his human bodies because he's, he got little sleep. But if he's praying, how much more important would it be for us to pray? And of course, we are commanded to pray. So, now we see that Zechariah is in the building. He's in the holy place. And this is where I think the story has a, a just a tremendous human element to it that we, sh we can't uh, avoid or we certainly shouldn't. Zechariah is in the building. He's in the, in the temple building. He's in the holy place standing in front of the altar of incense. And the altar of incense is about three feet high and it's about 18 inches square. So it's not high. It's a, it's a relatively small item of furniture. And he would be in front of it, maybe off to the side, pouring the coals and the incense on this 18-inch square area. And the smoke and the aroma, of course, is rising now from the incense. And mind you... He's in there alone. I don't know what the priest thought. I, you know, there have been times when we have been required to do things publicly. And maybe sort of in the middle of it, there's an opportunity to step off to the side so that you're somewhat secluded. You know, you, just, you want to zip over there. So, whew, you know, there are no eyes on me. But this is once in a lifetime. He's there accomplishing this responsibility. And first of all, it's before God. It's in the temple. This is a sacred event. But it's not something that he does routinely. It's something he rarely does. I would imagine there's a certain amount of trepidation. Probably some anxiety here. He's anxious about what he's doing. And that's the picture we see. He's all alone. Silence blankens his, blankets his world. The smoke of the incense probably obscures his vision. And then, verse 11, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Suddenly, there's somebody with him. I mean, I, I can't even begin to describe this. He is probably thankfully alone. 
So there's no one there judging or evaluating what he's doing. And his vision is somewhat obscured. And then suddenly, there is someone. You know, as the incense, the haze sort of drifts, moves, parts. And all I can say is that this would have been the last thing that Zachariah would have expected. Absolutely the last thing. There's no way that anyone should have been there. Absolutely none. Verse 12 says, And then Zacharias, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. (laughs) No kidding. Boy, is that an understatement. Troubled here means he was stirred up. And fear fell upon him. Fear, the word there is fell, but it's emphasized with a... a preposition that is prefixed to the verb. So it's intensified. Yes, it falls on him. We would say that he was seized with fear. He was probably jolted out of his wits as he stands there. I don't know that we can even accurately understand how he how he felt. But I would say that this is not just a normal appearance, we might say, of just another human being. Remember that angels, as they are represented, have commanding presence. They're described as being whiter than snow. And they... Are, they were known to have authority. Godly authority. And, that, and so here we are. When Daniel encountered an angel, he fell on his face, trembling. John wanted to worship them. And so here is Zechariah suddenly faced with an angel. And we're going to learn, we will learn later, I think I've already said his name. We're not told his name. He's just an angel. And I say just an angel. He's an angel. This would have been, well, I'm going to say doubly uh, unusual. Because Zachariah would have known that this is God's heavenly messenger certainly he had never encountered one previously as a matter of fact he probably didn't know anybody who had why because this is during the 400 years of silence the last person to have a message from God was Malachi the prophet 400 years of silence and I don't know that we often understand it but this is the breaking of that silence here in the temple with this priest, Gabriel is going to appear to him. Therefore, I don't think we can fully comprehend the situation. I think it's impossible for us to realize that we're not alone in these spaces. Zachariah thought he was alone, but he wasn't. 
angelic creatures are all around us. And they're not here independently, but as God's trusted agents. They're flames of fire. And they are constantly executing His will. And I don't know that you can go about your life conscious of angels swirling around you. These flames of fire. But they are there. And one of the reassurances is is that they're there. They are doing what they have been commanded to do because God has placed them there. They are there doing His bidding. And they are caring for us. I'm not even going to ask. I wonder what angels think of us. You know, on a daily basis. They have their responsibilities and they are observing us. And someday, we are going to be higher than them. The demons, of course, have their thoughts because they're involved. But the elect angels probably don't have those thoughts. Remarkable. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. (laughs) Again, do not be afraid. No, no kidding. Don't be afraid. Sorry. That, that passed. You know, the instant that he saw him, he's probably going to be scared for another week. Jittery. Don't come up on his blind side. Although, the blind side we're going to see is going to be pretty obvious. I imagine that he is operating on condition red for the next couple of weeks. And for our lesson, we need these words. Do not be afraid. Why should he not be afraid? Well, in the, in the text, don't be afraid because I'm here from God. You, you have nothing to fear from me. But in reality, we have nothing to fear. And as someone said, we need this emblazoned on a pillow, on our walls, on our computer screen. Because this is how we should live our lives. Don't be afraid. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, make your requests to God. God is in charge. We need to be reminded of this. God can be trusted. God loves us and he's providing for us. Do not fear. If we believe that God is in charge and he loves us, why do we so often fear the worst? And very often we do. We just naturally expect the worst. When we make a certain phone call, When we make a certain invitation, when we do something, we very often expect the worst. But prayer is great. Notice here it says, for your prayer is heard. What prayer? What prayer might that be? The angel says this in such a way that the child, that a child was, must have been a constant prayer. And I think even though it says it immediately afterward, the prayer for your child, But I think that Zechariah would have known exactly 
what the angel meant. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. I suppose if he had his wits about him, he might have said, What took so long? But God's plan did not only affect Zacharias, but it affected Elizabeth. Specifically, it had to affect Elizabeth. In verse uh, verse 13, by the way, we have no idea what effect our prayers have. I'm sure that Zechariah was praying, and his prayers not only affect him, but they affect Elizabeth. Elizabeth's praying, and her prayers not only affect her, but they affect Zechariah. And we sometimes think that we're praying for ourselves, and of course we shouldn't be. Our prayers should also be for others. But even our prayers for ourselves affect many people. So our prayers are important. They're not only important to us, they're important to others. And they're important to God. Prayers are powerful, powerful instruments. Verse 13 says, And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. There really are four parts here to that answer. First of all, it's Elizabeth. No Hagar involved here. It's Elizabeth. Secondly, it's about her conceiving. Third, it's about a son. Better than any sonogram. And fourth, the name is John. John. We'll see that that's going to be a point here that needs to be uh, emphasized. But anyhow, this is quite a message. Probably a message that they thought they would never hear. They had longed for it all their lives. And here it was, succinct and full. Remarkable. This would be a miraculous conception. I think that probably every conception has a bit of, of a is a bit of a miracle. Anybody who understands that process probably wonders how anybody conceives. But it's because it's superintended by God. I don't know if Zechariah is now going to be able to concentrate. But the angel now drops ten details on him. I mean, here is if someone gives you that kind of information, where's your mind? And the angel might have said, take notes. Look what he says. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Excuse me. 14, verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness. That's the first thing he's told. Secondly, many will rejoice at his birth. Thirdly, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Four, he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Five, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from 
and I think we need to add this, even out from his mother's womb. Uh, I don't have the time really to stop and do a quick study of what's being said here. People's theology, theologians, often translate this according to their theology. But ek here is out, not in, or not before. And therefore, what we really need to understand here is that the birth will occur first. That's what the text says. This is not an understanding of the filling of the Spirit, the church age filling of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, the word here, filled, is not the same word. It's not plerao, it's pimplami. Pimplami is very often used, as a matter of fact, almost, no, not exclusively, but it's very often used, for a special, a special dispensation of God the Holy Spirit, much like the endowment the endowment of God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So again, Pimplami, this is not what we have in Ephesians 5.18, where we're commanded to be filled by God the Holy Spirit. This is something different. This was something to accomplish a special function. John was to be the herald for the Messiah. The phrase, even from his mother's womb, is a figure of speech. It's used often in the Old Testament. And the literal translation, out from his mother's womb, means from birth or from a young age. Six, he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God. Seven, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Eight, he will turn their hearts, the hearts of the fathers, to their children. Nine, he will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And ten, he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's quite a mission. You know, I know that there are some parents who have plans for their children, might even make plans for them before they're born. John's life is planned, but not planned by the parents. His life is planned by God. And you might say, wow. Yes, but so are our lives. We just need to make the right decisions to follow that plan. So while this seems unusual, we should be able to say the same thing. Wow. God had a plan for John's life. God has a plan for my life. And by the way, it's just as important. Yes, this is an extraordinary blessing to be in this position, to be the herald for the Messiah. Herald spelled with an E, not an A. To be a herald for the Messiah. But we have just as important jobs. They're given to us by God, which he hath planned beforehand that we should walk in them. And we should never forget that. I think that this was certainly a lot for Zechariah to digest. The last one, of course, is the one that we know the most, that he was going to be a herald 
he was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And this has this had to be exciting. The Messiah had been promised, was expected, and now Zechariah not only knows the Messiah is coming, but his son is going to be the herald for it. Zechariah almost now can begin to put timing with this if he wanted to. So this is a wonderful assignment for Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. But secondly, this is an announcement of the Messiah. It's an extraordinary announcement by who? By the angel from God. Now, Zechariah at this point would have been just fine if he'd have thanked the angel and ran. Scared stiff. Run! But he didn't. Instead, verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? To me, Gabriel's response is precious. But let me address this. And Zacharias says to the angel, How shall I know this? And then he adds, For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. I love the way that that's said. I'm old. Yeah, she's advanced in years. Beyond a teenager here, he would say. Well, Zacharias should have simply been joyful and grateful. But instead, what is he? He's doubtful. Why, why do we doubt God's plan? even for our lives. I guess the years of waiting, Elizabeth's barrenness and both of their ages causes doubts. And what does he really say? Well, he wants proof. Zachariah essentially says, how can I be sure? Might say, he's saying, I don't believe you. I don't trust you. That's essentially what he's saying. And I think Zechariah forgets that this is an angel. He forgets what the angel represents. We would probably say that the promise was too good to be true. Very often things that seem too good to be true, therefore, are too difficult to believe. And for Zechariah, this was just too difficult to believe. But that's who God is. If it could have happened naturally, it would have. God is now involved. God is capable of the unbelievable. Yes, Elizabeth is beyond childbearing years. But she's not beyond the reach and the touch of God. And none of us are either. We're never beyond God's reach. Phrase in the Old Testament, is God's arm too short? No. It's never too short. God can reach us. We are always within His reach. Why? Because He, because he is the creator of all things. 
He's the author of life. Think of it. Age and time mean nothing to the eternal Father. Eternality. Time, not a problem. The truth is, God's strength is fully revealed, though. When our strength is depleted, His power is made perfect in our weakness. And, guess who's out in the crowd praying? Elizabeth. Elizabeth is in the crowd praying. Zachariah has just been given the best news of his life, probably, even beyond being selected to serve in the temple. And, whatever her age, she was still precious to God. And this was going to have a major impact on him. What? Verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, this is his answer. He gives him his ID card. As if Zachariah doesn't know. He says, I'm Gabriel. Now, for us reading this, that's just, okay, so he's identified as Gabriel. No, he's Gabriel! He's not identified that often in the Bible. He's identified twice in Daniel. Daniel 8 and 9. And as I said, Daniel is terrified when he appears. He says, I'm Gabriel. That should have probably been all he needed to say. What he's saying is, do you know who I am? Do you know whom I serve? Do you know who sent me? Do you know who gave me the message? Do you think I made this decision on my own? Just to appear? I'm Gabriel. By the way, his name means God is my strength. Who stands in the presence of God. You know, I'm Gabriel. I stand before God in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings to give you this good news. It's as if Zechariah why are you babbling? What's your problem? And I would love to stop and ask some questions about Gabriel. We know that angels are incredibly powerful. They have the authority of God with them. I'm going to ask the questions anyhow. What do you think God told Gabriel? Do you think he said, oh, by the way, he's not going to believe you? Therefore, be prepared to, what? Cuff him a good one upside the head. Set his robe on fire. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know if God said anything to him because these are superior creatures. He probably just knew. 
what he could and what he should do. Just like the angels that surround us. I don't know what these angels are doing. What they're directed to do. But Gabriel is going to respond here. You know, just from the sense of it, you would have thought the angel was enough. The angel tells him it should have been enough. And up to now, Gabriel hasn't identified himself. Why? Because that's not the point. The point's the message, not who I am. Zachariah's doubt gives us some insight here. He's receiving a message from God, but he doubts. You know, we, I, I, as I was doing this, I, I thought about this. I said, good gracious. But you know something? We cannot judge Zacharias. Zachariah. Yes, he was receiving a message from one of God's emissaries, an angel. But we have God's word direct. We can read it ourselves. This is the mind of Christ. We doubt too. We don't accept the word of God, trust it, exploit it, use it. Put yourself in his sandals. I think that's where we are. We would we would have done the same thing because we do it probably every day. So it's now time to learn what Zachariah's name means. Zachariah's name means it's a and these by the way are Hebrew names that are brought into the Greek and his name means God remembers. Isn't that remarkable? Zakar in the, in the Hebrew means to remember. God remembers. God had not forgotten Zechariah and Elizabeth. God sent me, is what Gabriel is saying, to give you the good news. Verse 20. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day that these things take place. What would be the one thing that Zechariah would want to do? Tell everybody, particularly Elizabeth. What's he not going to be able to do? He's not even going to be able to finish his duties because he's supposed to walk out of the temple and bless the people. He's not going to be able to say anything, but because he can't speak, and by the way, it's evident that he also can't hear. He is mute, and he's deaf. He's not going to be able to communicate anything. This is just wonderful. Behold means see, observe, listen. Which is, by the way, all that Zachariah was going to be able to do from now on. And he's not going to be able to hear anything, by the way. He not only lost his ability to speak, but he lost his ability to hear. Others would have to speak to him with signs. Zechariah here had doubted God's message and placed more trust in his own opinions. We're old. She's barren. 
And often we have two propositions, God's and ours. God's propositions and our propositions. And the sad fact is, is that we very often choose ours. We need to have more, comp- more confidence in God's word than the problems and the worries that surround us. It's important. God's faithful. Even if we doubt, what's going to see, we're going to see here is that God's promise is going to be fulfilled. Zechariah doubts what God has told him through Gabriel. But that's not going to stop God's plan. That's not going to stop God's promise. Even if we doubt, God's promise is going to be fulfilled. And Zechariah's loss of speech here is not punishment, but it's proof. You want proof? You got it. The supernatural termination of his ability to speak and hear is a forerunner to the supernatural conception that will occur in Elizabeth. I think the silence here also serves another purpose. He would not be able to tell anyone but maybe Elizabeth. John is going to announce the Messiah, but Zechariah is going to be prevented from announcing the herald until God wants that announcement made. Verse 21 says, And the people waited for Zechariah and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. See, Gabriel disappears quickly. He's gone. Now Zechariah's got to make a decision. What am I going to do? Uh, Does everything grind to a halt? No. There are people waiting for him. And they're now wondering why he's tarried, as we might say. Why he's lingered so long. Zechariah's got a problem. His doubt, his desire for proof has caused him to really almost be unable to do his duty. The incense was really a brief ceremony, so naturally the crowd is bewildered. And I imagine Elizabeth, who's out there praying, is wondering as well. She probably is putting on a good face. Oh, don't worry. He's very precise. He takes his time. He's very detailed. I've seen him take, you know, whatever it was. And so it was, as soon as, excuse me, verse 22. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. That, isn't that amazing? A vision. They'd, he'd seen something. For he, re- he beckoned to them and remained speechless. That's the only way he can communicate with them, somehow. This is the beginning of charades. Verse 23. And so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed. Notice he just continued to serve. This is an important thing. He continued to serve because God had designated him to serve. And the priests weren't going to change that, even if he was having some trouble. His service was completed, that he departed to his own house. Verse 24, there's more that could be said here. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months. I'd like to spend a lot more time here with Elizabeth. You know, Elizabeth was probably told by 
Zechariah. An angel appeared to me. By the way, his name was Gabriel. Couldn't speak. But he said, we're going to have a son. That had to be the most encouraging news that she'd ever heard. Probably since the day of her marriage. But, what does Elizabeth do? Elizabeth, verse 24, Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, that's what God had promised, and then it says she hid herself for five months. Her husband can't say anything, and Elizabeth decides to do the same. I Now this is probably an opportunity for retrospection by you know, the mothers in our assembly here. What did you do when you first knew that you were pregnant? Did you want to tell others? She probably does, but she has been without child and she's beyond her years. She probably decides that she doesn't want to be doubted. A fantasy. You're lying. And so she keeps it quiet. Probably for five months, even herself, even as her waistband, waistline begins to expand, she probably waits until what was known then in Old English for the quickening. Somewhere maybe between 18 and 20 weeks, there would be internal proof. There's life, which makes it real, truly real. And now she can tell others. Verse 25, Thus the Lord has dealt with me. When the time came for her self-imposed silence to end, she spoke with boldness and gratitude, and she says this is from the Lord. Thus the Lord has dealt with me, in the days or during the time when he looked upon me and this is with favor to take away my reproach barrenness you know remarkably Zechariah had certainly been involved but Elizabeth knows that the real source of the baby inside her is the Lord is God Psalm 127 says that children are a gift from God Therefore, God alone deserves the glory. And though her husband was silent, God had spoken. Also, notice that human effort all those years had been futile. But God simply makes it happen. There's not a lot of fanfare here. It's just God made a promise. And it occurred. Elizabeth knew that God's favor had really been upon her. But now his favor was showing. It was illustrated. She was always blessed, but now it was showing in a human way. God changed everything. Her body, her calling, her future, and her reputation. Now there's more to this story, but the fact is that she does give birth. She gives birth to a son. They call his name John. And John is going to have an extraordinary impact on the world. 
because he's going to announce the reason for our season, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming, the long-anticipated Messiah. And I think that while this seems to be a story uh, that's unusual, maybe, to be studied at Christmas, it's the story of hope and of a God who loves us, cares for us, provides for us. And even during times of disappointment, maybe sadness, during times when we're discouraged, we simply need to keep our eyes on the Lord and His promises to us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you do love us. We're thankful for this story about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we're thankful, Father, for your promise and your fulfillment. And Father, just as Zechariah and Elizabeth could depend, could trust on the fulfillment of that promise, we can trust on the fulfillment of your promises as well to us. And those promises come to us because of your love. And your love is demonstrated to us in no small way through the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. We're thankful for his birth. We're thankful for his sacrifice, his atoning work on the cross, for his death and his resurrection. And we're thankful for his promise that he will return for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.